Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Kevin Amalsh is a successful real estate investor and private money lender. He earned his degree in finance after serving four years in the U.S. Army. After college, Kevin spent two years working with Wall Street as a mortgage bond analyst before leaving to work in real estate financing for investors full-time. He and his companies have closed over 2,400 transactions as a buyer, seller, or private money lender. He has spent two decades as a real estate investor and 16 years in real estate lending. He's the author of The 45-Day Investor, a frequent speaker, and has been quoted in the Las Vegas Review Journal, the Denver Post, Yahoo Real Estate, Denver Business Journal, and Forbes. Kevin, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, listen, you know, real estate investing, finance, all this great stuff, 2,400 deals, super impressive. Before we get to talking about all of that, though, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm guessing a real estate investor and lender and financer was not it at that age, but you tell me. You know, that's funny. You're the first person to ever ask me that question. And I'm I'm going to take myself back to that time. And I got to tell you, I was an entrepreneur back then. I was riding my bike for about 40 minutes to, it was called Farmore. It was a drugstore where I could buy bubble gum. So uh-huh. I'd buy a pack of bubble gum for $1 and it came in four packs. And I'd go sell those for 50 cents a pack, make a dollar on the, on the thing. And, and so I was selling bubble gum at school when I was 12 and 13 years old. So I knew I had to be a, an entrepreneur I just didn't know exactly what path that looked like. Love it. I love these early entrepreneurial stories. I have one of my own. I won't tell it here. I've told it on the podcast before. I mean, you know, listen, some some people come to entrepreneurship later in life. Some, some are situational entrepreneurs, but it is really interesting how many people do have these early stories of some sort of entrepreneurial you know, venture. Or, so that's awesome. One other uh, question looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could be something early in your career, or maybe it was, you know, being a kid entrepreneur, maybe it was not a sale, but like any kind of deal of any type. I know this doesn't count. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to try to avoid your question, but gosh, getting my first lawnmower gig, right? The one that was going to be consistent every week. That was really a big deal for me, but I'm trying to think of structuring a deal. You know, I traded baseball cards when I was younger. And I remember there's this one baseball card. It was a Frank Thomas error card. It was a tops. And I wanted that card so bad. It was so rare. You know, this was the only card I've ever seen that was worth over a thousand dollars. Wow. So just negotiating with my buddy over and over and over until finally he gave in and and I gave up the farm. I gave him a lot of cards. He probably won in that transaction, but I got the <laughs> card I wanted. 
Well, you know, I mean, obviously he could sense your, uh, your oh, level sure. of desire, right? <laughs> and he leverages that, right? <laughs> I love it. All right. So listen, we definitely hit on, you know, the high level in the bio, but uh, give us a little more specifically who you do deals for, what types of deals, you know, residential, commercial size, that kind of give us the landscape. Yeah. I love real estate. I love deals. When I was in the army, I was, I wasn't spending any money. I've always been real frugal. I, I grew up that way. So I was building a little bit of a savings account. I started reading books like, where, where can I put this money? And, and then I picked up that little purple Bible that we all know about, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And, and it right. talked about investing in real estate and how it can create the, the life of your dreams, right? And, and Kiyosaki is very much into real estate. And so I started focusing my, my books that I was reading on real estate investing. Um, and then before I got out of the army, I'd purchased my first home it was right in the middle of the ghetto, if there is one of those in Denver. Pretty rough area. Moved out of the, or got out of the army, moved into it. Lived there for a couple of years, moved out and decided to keep that as my rental. So there I was, I was 23 years old, just turned 23 and I had my first rental property. Yep. But I saw the value going up. I saw the benefits I would get on my taxes. I, I saw the tenant cash flow and the tenant paying off my loan. I saw all the things that we all know about. And then it was then that I decided, you know, real estate is going to be the vehicle that makes me rich. And I just decided to focus, really focus in on that asset. Yeah. So what is it? Let's talk about how that manifests now, right? In terms of, you know, you're still doing your own investing. I I know you're doing some lending. I knew, you know, so talk about all the things you're doing now and who are the people you're working with and what types of deals? Yeah. So I guess there's there's kind of two sides here. I still do quite a bit of my own investing. Like you said, I've, I've invested in some industrial buildings and some new development projects and that kind of thing. But on the, the Pine Financial side, the company where I spend the majority of my time, um, I'm helping other real estate investors fund their transactions. Mm-hmm. So we run multiple mortgage funds. The, our most recent is about 18 months old at this point. It's a public fund, which I'm really proud of. That was not an easy process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're fully approved to offer to accredited and non-accredited investors. And I could promise a return. So we have an 8% return on that thing. And we use that to make loans to real estate developers at 10 and 12%. And everybody's making money. So it's, uh, I'm kind of doing my dream here, Corey, to be honest with you. And, and, and you had done prior funds that were private yeah. before this one? Yeah, everything we did was private, but there's so many restrictions around that. Yep. Accredited versus non-accredited. And, and I would hurt, hit like a non-accredited investor limit and I'd have to start a new fund. And then I'd hit a limit and I'd have to start. And so it was just like this, I have this like freaking menu of, of mortgage funds. Like how do I consolidate? And so we decided to go the public route. Love it. So let's talk about when you started raising in your original fund. I mean, I, I've dabbled in this a little bit. I had a couple of funds with a partner. You know, we did some multifamily residential. We did a couple of small condo conversions and, you know, raised mainly money from people we knew, right? And that wasn't something we continue with. But so I've been through that process a little bit. And, you know, there's a lot that comes up around that, right? First of all, the, you know, just the responsibility for other people's money, the ability to raise that capital, who you can raise it from, what their expectations are. What had you first get into that aspect? Because it's very different than investing your own money and or getting other people's money to invest in your projects than to be the one who's raising, you know, and, and where, did, where did you raise your original capital from to do this? It's yeah, so we're we go back to, to 2006. I had started working with another mortgage broker that was giving me hard money loans at the time for my own fix and flips. Yep, and yep. She, she wanted to take me under her wing and help teach me the business. And so I started learning from her, but she wouldn't give me access to her capital. She she basically said, you have to go out and raise your own, with one exception. I met John. John had $100,000, and he says, well, you can loan out my money. And so this was a referral from her. And so I went to the real estate for our, like a broker sales meeting. 
Okay. And I just got up in front of the room and said, I have a hundred grand. If you know, one said, let me know, let's talk and loan that money out the very next week. And I shared points. I sh- gave them all the interest. So I made a little $2,000 commission on this one transaction, just brokering a private money lender with a, with a real estate investor to get a fix and flip. Yep. And so I, I started growing from there. And I started teaching classes and, and, and webinars and seminars and, and telling people what I was doing. Um, turns out I was doing everything absolutely incorrectly. And I learned the hard way on that. We can go that direction. We can talk about that story if you want. Oh, absolutely. Um, but eventually I had to go out and get my license once I realized I needed that. So I went out and got that and started Pine Financial. And it was doing really well, except for I was getting feedback. The amount to invest is too high. There's no liquidity. There's no diversification. Mm. So to solve all three of those, we put together our first fund. That was 2009. 2009. Okay. Interesting. So, I mean, that was an interesting time. Obviously, significant challenges and opportunities at that time. So, yeah. So let's talk about the advantages of a fund because, frankly, what motivated me at the time we put together some of that stuff is that there were a couple of opportunities that I saw that were great opportunities but by the time I was able to raise the capital or even started to raise the capital for, you know, for that spe- deal specific thing, the opportunity was gone. Right. That's so right. because I, there was, so that was the motivator for me. Was that, was it similar for you? Cause I've had people on the show even who still do just deal specific, you know, SPVs, you know, raising money for particular deals and, and they, and they haven't moved to a fund model. So yeah. What, what was that the trigger for you mainly? No, because we never did single asset. I've done one syndication yep. and that was one property we already owned. So there was no time crush there. Got it. We, we were doing open-end blind funds the entire time. And, and because we knew that the, we could go out and generate the business and we can go loan that money out. Yep. And I've always had a queue of private investors that don't want to go on a fund. They're worried about transparency and Ponzi schemes on some of those things. So they wanted individual loans. So I've always had my queue of individual investors. But I would loan out my money in the fund first. And if I needed additional money, I'd go to my queue. Got it. But I think Got the motivation it. really core was those three, the feedback I was getting from investors. They wanted to invest 25 grand, not 150 or 200 grand. Yeah. Yeah, it made sense. And obviously it's different. Our funds were for direct investment. Your right. funds are for lending to people who are doing projects, you know, That's so right. interesting. Okay. So let's talk about the decision to then go for, you know, to the public fund and and let's break it. You know, we have some folks who are very sophisticated, understand everything we're talking about, including accredited investors, non-accredited investors. But as this podcast has, has grown from the 60 or 80 people who used to listen to my first few episodes to the 40,000 people a month, you know, who listen now, you know, we have, we have people at a variety of levels, some people who just learn about deals and whatever. So when we talk about it, basically the, the short version of the loss of an accredited investor is sort of what they claim are smart, rich people. It's basically, you need to have a certain net worth or a certain, you know, million dollars above net worth without, without home value, which they took out of it a few years back, you know, or earn, what is it now? Is it 200,000 single and 300,000 uh, married? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, basically what the law says, right, is if you're if you're above a certain income level, asset level, they assume you could basically protect yourself. Whereas if you're below that, unaccredited, you know, you need some additional protections. So when you say that the public fund has given you the ability and you hit limits, just explain that a little more. Like, you know, I don't want you don't have to get into every legal rule. I'm the lawyer, but you know, just just so people understand that motivation and and a little bit more about how that works. Yeah. So these are reg Ds. These are the private offerings. And when you have a reg D with one exception, it has to be within your network. So that's the biggest restriction. There's no advertising. Yep. And you can only accept up to 35 non-accredited investors. 
So we're trying to build this big fund, which it would allow you to do. You can only do five million in a year, but you could continue each year and keep adding to it. But once you hit that 35, you're done. You can't, you can't do anymore. So we would hit that 35 non-accredited investor limit. And the way around the regulation is just to start a new fund and then it starts over. So it's it's just it's just starting starting new funds, un- unlimited accredited investors. And you know, an interesting thing with the Jobs Act, where you guys probably know that you know this and I'm sure some of your listeners do too, but now you're allowed to advertise in a Reg D, yep. the 506C. So the restriction there is accredited investors only, but the huge benefit is you can put up a website. Right. Yeah. I mean, you never used to be able to advertise any any of the Reg D deals before the job. Yeah. Okay. So now you go for this public fund, right? And because it's public, which means that there's all kinds of additional disclosure required and all these other things, you don't have any limit on the on the non-accredited that you can right. raise from. Yeah. But so, it says that there's a new interesting limit now, and it's a 75 million total raise cap. Right. Um, I, I think that might go up because it's kind of restrictive also. Uh, yep. But I think our next step might be a reach or something where you're not going to have that that restriction. So as we grow and, and get better and better, we're we're doing different funds, I guess. Got it. All right. And what types of deals do you lend money on in terms of you know projects? Is it is it a broad range? Is it a specific geography? Is it only you know commercial? Is it residential? You know what what is it? Yeah, fantastic question. So we're we're heavily weighted on the residential side. So we're 80, 20 residential to commercial. But 100% across the board, we're value add only. So if you're looking at in the residential side, you're going to fix something up and then you're going to throw a tenant in there and refinance it. Fantastic way to get into properties with little or no money down. If you're going to fix and flip, that's the obvious one. New construction, a lot, we do a lot of infill, new construction projects. Infill is basically you're scraping a house and you're building a new one. On the commercial side, it's, it's repositioning. So do you have a vacant apartment building that you want to convert or are you going to stabilize it? And everything we do is based on the completed or stabilized value. Mm-hmm. So if we can see how you're going to accomplish your plan and you're going to get to that completed value, we'll use that as our benchmark and we're going to loan a percentage of that number. Very different than a lot of lenders, which have a very strict loan to cost ratio, mm-hmm. meaning you have to put money into the project. Um, we try to stay away from that. As long as we can be comfortable in in the, the collateral and the sponsor, then we want to be involved. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about that, being comfortable in the collateral and the sponsor. Like how are you underwriting these deals? And then also who, you know, so I mean, obviously there's the deal itself and then there's the who, right? You're only working with people with track records. You know, if somebody new comes along, but the deal looks really good, are you considering it? What are you looking at? Well, we have tightened guidelines a little bit because we're expecting a recession. I know that by the time you drop this, that we might be in that recession. Mm-hmm. I would make the argument we are in it right now. So we are we're being very careful with our underwriting. So we're we're strict being more strict on our liquidity requirements and our credit requirements. We do not have a down payment requirement, as I mentioned. We're a hundred percent lender up to a certain point of the value. So on the residential side, very liquid, and we can. I feel very comfortable in that area, and I should say that we're pretty geographically focused on the residential side. But we'll go all the way to seventy percent of the completed value on right. residential side. On the commercial side, we need to stick to sixty-five percent because it's just not as liquid. So we, I want a little bit more room in case I need to drop the price to get out, get out of a project. As far as experience on the commercial side, hundred percent yes, you have to have experience or somebody. Somebody on the loan that's guaranteed that loan has to have an experience. Residential side, we're a little bit looser. We just want to know that you have some hand holding through a project. 
we don't want you to go gambling with our money, basically. But you have you have someone that can help you if you get into trouble, then we'll probably be in, in the deal with you. But reserves, you got to have reserves. That's the one thing that's going to keep you safe. Yeah. And, you know, you listen, you mentioned the changing market. I will mention that we're recording this in mid-January just to give people a, a place because this is going to come out months later and markets can change. But yeah, so, you know, obviously, listen, interest rates have pushed up, you know, a bunch, which some people may think for somebody who's lending, that's a positive thing, but not necessarily, right? It's not, so it's really not. Right. So talk about that because, you know, the uninformed may say, wait a second, these people lend money, higher interest rates, they make more money. That should be better, right? Well, why not? Well, there's a cost of capital that they're not thinking about. Now, banks right. go out and, and are at the overnight rate, which is super cheap, right? And that's the rate that the, the Fed moves. We live in the long-term rate world. So those there's not a big core. I mean, there is a correlation, but it's not a direct correlation. So our cost of capital has continued to increase both with our private investors because they're demanding more and our, our lines. We have a few lines of credit with the banks and they're tied to prime. Prime's at 7.5% right? as we're recording this. That's right. pretty high. So it's we're getting squeezed because we don't increase our interest rates. We're we stay to you know around 12%. And and as our cost capital goes up, our margin shrinks. Well, that's right. And listen, if the whole industry started pushing up rates, then obviously that's going to make deals more expensive for your customers, which is going to make more of those deals not make sense, right? That's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And look, there's competition, and competition burns pricing down. That's yeah. where we get impacted on, on interest rates, not what's going on in the economy. We get, we're impacted by our competitors. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that there's a, a pretty defined geographical area for the list of residential investments you do. What, what are you talking about? What that is? Yes. You're going to ask me why those markets, because it's an interesting mix here. So we're, we're in Denver. So obviously we loan in Colorado. Yep. We do a lot of business in the Twin Cities and Minnesota because we had some family out there. And a big risk in this business is inspections and limiting fraud. So, you know, there's been cases where appraisers or inspectors would inspect a different property than they're supposed to, just so that the lender would release draw money. And then that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. So we decided to prevent that. So we went to Minnesota and then right across the border is Wisconsin. So we've been doing some stuff in Wisconsin. And then finally, we just started wanting quite a bit in Washington, D.C. Because again, because we have some connections down there or over there. Yeah. People on the ground, right? I mean, that's, people you know, on the ground, yeah. that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's let's talk a little bit about, you know, you're, you're saying, talking about maybe we're in or expecting a recession by the time this thing launches, sometimes months from now. What's interesting to me, and I've been, listen, I've been doing what I do for 35 years, right? So I've seen, you name it, right? You know, I was a young attorney at a big firm in Manhattan, you know, on Black Friday, right? I've been through the internet bus, through 9-11 and the recession that came after that, through 2008, you know, all of that, right? And I think people who are deal makers like yourself look at all of those things differently than a lot of other people, right? 
I mean, yes. I mean, you're going to, obviously you talked about changing and being more aware and changing your underwriting guidelines, you know, because if you're anticipating a recession, but at the same time, my experience, I think history tells us that some of the best opportunities come in, in down times, right? So tell me about your experience with that and, and maybe what kind of opportunities might be coming out of some of the challenges that we have seen and maybe seeing in the, in the months to come. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited on the commercial side. We're going to see some defaults there. And it's impossible not to because the lenders base their loans on debt service coverage ratios. And with the interest rate going up so high, when those things turn out, meaning they mature, um, they're not going to be qualifying for refinances. So the sellers, the owners have no choice but to sell. Yep. So we're going to see some opportunities in commercial. Residential side, I don't know. We need more inventory. I know that. Yes. More inventory creates a spread between wholesale and retail. Yes. So if you think if you have a whole lot of inventory and buyers can be picky, which is what they choose from, well, the retail buyers are going to choose a nice, nice product, right? Um, and then that means all the foreclosures and the wholesale type product just doesn't get interest in it. And so that value has to come down. But then the, on the retail side, that's going to continue to rise. So that's why you'll see a spread increase in a higher inventory environment. The problem core is I don't see where the inventory is coming from. Right. We have high construction costs. We have builders that are backing out. The West side of the United States is over 10% decline in home starts. And they're, they're not bullish at all. They, they, they continue to see contracts falling apart. And so they're now they're owners of properties that they had under contract. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe foreclosures from the higher interest rates will, will create some, but what I'm seeing is that people are locked into 3% rates and they're not moving. So unless, unless we see an uptick in unemployment, which I'm sure will happen, that's the only place I can see where the inventory is going to come from. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really fascinating because, you know, you try to learn from history and you try to draw historical comparisons. And to some extent there are, you know, factors, but we've never had a situation. I mean, you know, you, we, we talk, it's funny, you know, cause everything's context. We talk about the prime being seven, whatever, and having that be high. Well, it's certainly high compared to what it's been for a long, long, long time. But there's been historical times when it was higher, right? I mean, I remember when I when I was younger, my parents had a mortgage in the teens, and I'm talking about with a conventional, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, bank, right? So, really, what is different is we've never had a period where interest rates were held down so artificially low by the Fed for so long that you have so many people, right, who've locked in these, you know, who have these lower rates. It's not, you know, it wasn't just a day, but it's been for years and years and years, right? So so you have all these people that have these low rates. Things have, you know, you can comparatively high. Some people might just say normalized, whatever, whatever you want to do. It depends, again, again, what period you're looking at in context. But the point is that, you know, I don't know, and it goes to your point, you know, you know have we had a situation where there's been, such a rapid change increase, right? I don't think, you know, in interest rates that creates such a gap between what people have and, you know, and and the cost of capital and therefore the cost such that, because listen, what often happens is, right, over time is if, is if buying a home becomes more expensive, eventually the, the prices get lower. Of course, the capital is higher, the prices have to get lowered because, it's, you know, but when there's such a gap like this and, and, and the amount that it would have to adjust to take into account that higher interest rate is so extreme, it's hard for the market to adjust for that over any kind of reasonable period of time. At least that's my concern. Oh, I totally agree. And it takes time. I mean, even on the short-term rates, the, the government's fighting this in two ways, and you know that they're committed to it. 
they're fighting it with higher short-term rates and, and quantitative tightening. Now, the yep. quantitative tightening is going to impact mortgage rates almost immediately. But the, int- the short-term, you're not going to see that for four, five, six months. So what I think seems a little bit bizarre to me, and, and they're way smarter than me, or so <laughs> take this for what it, what it is, but it seems bizarre that they're increasing at such a pace or that they did increase at such a rapid pace. You know, it's only been one time in history it's gone up that, that fast. And the rates were already in the double digits. No right. time in history has it doubled that quickly. Yeah. What we don't know what impact that's going to have yet because it hasn't had enough time to work its way through the system. Yeah, very fascinating. But but listen, you know, one of the things I've said in the past as to why I've been interested in real estate, and it's not the main thing I do, right? But you know, I make investments here and there that I like, especially on the residential side, is that it is still a relatively inefficient market. Well, especially when you compare it to stock market between, you know, the, the, the program trading systems and the sophisticated investors and hedge funds and, and you know, and, and the access to information, not even to mention the insider trading and, and, and all the other bad stuff that goes on behind the scenes that you can't compete with. It's a highly efficient market. I mean, there's sophisticated players playing in it and the high-end commercial market, if you're talking about class A commercial buildings in New York City, right, that's a highly efficient market. But, you know, a lot of what you're investing in, certainly on the residential side, is a lot less efficient, which... So talk about that concept because, you know, that's where I believe, and I've heard other other folks talk about the fact that, you know, like in an inefficient market, no matter what the market is, there's always opportunity, right? More so than in a much more efficient market. Yeah. And I mean, I think, well, two things. It's more efficient than it once was because we have institutional sure. buyers now. So now you have sure. Blackstone out there, but they're pulling out now, right? And they've, they've halted distribution. So that's a little scary. Um, but you look at if you talk about inefficiency. Look at the i buying programs. Look what happened to Zillow and Redfin and these, pro- these programs that thought, look at fixing and flipping is so profitable. Let's let's get into that business, and they're going bankrupt. Yeah, it's because because what you're ta- exactly what you're talking about. There's not a giant pool of buyers for each individual property. I mean, it has to be someone that's local and understands that specific market to be successful. So I think that's what you're alluding to when you're saying non efficient. The big benefit to that is for us real estate investors, we could find value add. Right? You could force appreciation on real estate. You can't do that in the stock market. Yeah. I could buy a property and sell it on an owner carry, and I added value immediately just because I opened up the pool of buyers. Yes. Or I could rehab the kitchen and add value. Right? There's lots of ways to add value in real estate. You can't do that. You can't do that in the stock market. What else are you seeing in the market generally, or you know that that might be of interest to people? Because we have some folks on this podcast who are in real estate. We have some folks who, you know, we have a lot of folks, you know, because we we do focus a lot on like mergers, acquisitions, joint ventures, like other kind of more corporate deals. But even in that community, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and executives and leaders who individually invest in real estate or, you know, understand they want to diversify out of having all the money in their companies. And sometimes, you know, they get involved. So there's, you know, they they come at it in various ways, but, you know, I know a lot of the folks, even if it's not their primary focus, have some interest in real estate, where the opportunities are going to be. So, you know, any other things that you're seeing that might be of interest to those folks? As they well, look? I mean, they can talk all day. <laughs> I really think that real estate should be consideration for any portfolio. Mm, yep. um, the, the diversification is key. So, Am I hard on stocks? Yeah, I am. And, and we saw that at the beginning of this year. Why? Do I, does that mean you shouldn't invest in the stock market? Absolutely not. I think you should have exposure to as many different asset classes as you can. The thing about real estate that is so powerful is it's a real asset. So it's like precious metal. 
You want something like that in a high inflation time, for example, because it's a hedge for that. And we saw that. We saw what happened to real estate values when the inflation was high. So that would have been a good place to have your money to protect yourself from the inflation, right? But on top of that, you can rent it out. So I can hold a, a gold bar and know that it's going to increase in value when the value of the dollar goes down, right? But I'm not producing income from it. Real estate right. will produce that cash flow. And the multiple streams of income is how you become free. So if you're busy in, in your business, maybe you bought a business or you merged, you had a merger like you're describing. I don't know that much about that world, but I can assume that having some extra income on the side would benefit you. Yeah, it's you know it's it's, it's an interesting time. I mean, real estate's always fascinating me. I've I've had my business interests have, have done you know have taken a lot more of my time. I've done well, so I haven't done as much of it. But I've I've definitely done some, and it's so it's always fascinating to me. All right. You know, you talked about the competitors a little bit. You talked about the squeeze on, you know, on, on your margin. So are you at this point, are you doing fewer deals or is it just that previously you had a huge inflow and you, and you got to pick and choose them? So you, you, you're choosing from a smaller pool now, but you're still getting deals done. What is it looking like on deal volumes? Obviously rates haven't pushed up much for you in terms of your, what you can charge. Maybe at some point that'll be forced to happen across the industry. What are you seeing in deal volume? Deal volume is increasing. It's crazy. We're growing like crazy. So we'll do 220 million or something like that in originations. So we're still pretty small compared to some of the, the bigger private money lenders out there. Sure. But we're just continuing to grow year after year. I think the recession that we're going into, this should benefit everybody, even people that are looking to buy businesses. Um, this is where you know the good become great and the not so good disappear. I saw this in 2001 and I, I was in that recession. I saw it in 2008 when the same facts came and there was all this regulation that pushed people out. I'm thinking we're going to see it again. As margins get small, if you're not efficient, you're going to go out of business. So um, I guess this goes back to your question earlier. What are the opportunities? Well, it, for me at Pine Financial, my opportunity is going to be, I'm going to have, we're going to send the herd a little bit. Yeah, um, and that's going to help me improve my business in the future years. But I mean, we'll, we'll see. We'll see opportunities like that everywhere, right? Yeah. When people are hurting, that's when there's going to be opportunities. As disgusting as that sounds. No, no. It's listen. It's definitely true. And and you know, and some people automatically go to the place of yeah, opportunistic buyers, and then they take advantage of people. But that's not you know. So I mean, is there some of that out there that goes on in every month? Sure. But for the most part, just things shift and. And listen, you know, it happens in business, it happens in real estate. Somebody has a life event that's changed them. They have a health issue. They want to move to be with the grandkids. They do whatever. There are a lot of reasons why people can't wait around for a market to come back up and, you know, and, and you know, they they need to do a deal and it's, and they're happy to do a deal in, that, in those circumstances. Also, you know, with regard to, you know, thinning the herd, I mean, that's, listen, I was joking with, and I've said this a bunch of times with one, of, I recorded an episode earlier today on a special series I'm doing with folks in the wealth management industry who are doing a lot of M&A. And, you know, for many years in that market with wealth advisors, I mean, you know, this is a 12 plus year bull market, right? Everybody looks brilliant in the bull market, sure. right? You know, everybody's had growth now, but, but if you get underneath how much of their growth is really true organic growth as opposed to just the market going up, because those guys get paid a percentage of assets in the management. So if the market has gone up 20, 30, 40%, they're making 20, 30, 40% more. But if they had organic growth on top of that, when you study it, most of those firms have had under 3% organic growth, right? So who are the ones that are doing 15, 20% organic growth on top of the market growth? So it's similar to here. You're right. I mean, in every industry, the herd gets thin and the companies that are working that are most profitable, most efficient, better at what they do, 
they end up having less competition coming out of the bad times and actually usually more than make up for any drop they had during the bad time with that additional business they get when the when the herd is has been thin. Yeah, absolutely. This is the time to to make sure your systems are right, make sure your your people are you got the right people in the right seats. And you know, all the, the, the basics, the fundamentals of business. This is the time to focus on that. Focus on the growth when you come out of this, right? Yeah. So in a, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you, you still have plenty of opportunities, so you don't have an issue with deploying capital, but sometimes what happens, and this is more on the corporate side, like with these private equity funds, right? They raise these these funds and then they have pressure to deploy capital. Nobody likes the capital sitting on the sidelines. And then I talk about this a lot, and it could apply in real estate where, you know, there that could be a factor amongst other things that has people lose deal discipline, right? Got to deploy my capital. Oh, so, you know, talk talk to us about how you made, you know, that conversation of maintaining deal discipline. Well, for us, it's fairly easy. I don't mean to sound arrogant, but it's just that's that's how we started the company. So we were we started in 2008, just brokering loans. And I was doing it in 2006 with with Susan and, and then we decided to split up and I started buying. And then I got that first fund in 2009. But I always had that queue of investors on the sideline wanting deals. Yeah. Now I get some pressure from them. Yep, but but that's an easy conversation. Do you want to me to give you a a, a shitty deal? Because I could do that, or would you rather be patient and wait till you get a good deal that you can have some confidence in? Yeah, and then I loan out our fund funds <laughs> first, and so I could keep the returns fairly high in the funds. Now, so I've always had that structure, but now we've layered in some leverage, so we have some lines of credit that makes it really easy to, to manage the cash flow. And, and not have that pressure that you're describing. Yeah, I'll tell you what, discipline is key in, in a in a time like we're in right now. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, no question about it. It's because you know, it's, it's an interesting time because in some ways, you know, there's still so much capital out there, right? Yeah. Now, you know, it's we're starting to see some, like you know, you mentioned the folks who pull back a little bit, but but there's still a lot of money out there. So it's you know, it's an interesting time on the decisions people are making and how disciplined they're being and whether they're pulling back or whether they're still deploying capital and what, you know, what's going to happen. Cause we're, none of us have a crystal ball despite what, you know, so uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You mentioned this experience where you did everything wrong, right? Oh, yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit because I, you know, it's often we learn the most and, and, and it's even, you know, audiences learn the most from the mistakes people have made, you know, and, and every, no matter how super successful somebody is like you are, you know, we've all we've all had our share of of, of you know big mistakes. So t- t- tell us that story. Yeah, it's a it's an embarrassing one, but I'll share it. So I was working with Susan, and and she taught me the business as we talked about today. And and 2008 was was hitting, and she was getting nervous, and she's definitely wanted to be more of a teacher. She wanted to coach and train, and I'm a deal guy. I wanted to be in the trenches. So that's why that's why the separation. But I, I trusted her with everything. She taught me the business. She assured me that we were doing everything correctly and we didn't need any licensing or anything like that. Well, one of my competitors called me and said, you know, how'd you do on the test or how, like, how'd, how's your licensing going? And I, I didn't know what to, how, to, how to respond to that. And this was a guy I respected in the industry also. So here's the mistake I made, Corin. I called the state of Colorado, the Department of Regulatory Agencies, to ask them if I needed to have a license for the business I was currently operating. Yeah. I should have called an attorney. Yeah. Who would have on an anonymous basis, either would have advised you if they knew the answer or could have, if there were any nuances, 
call the agency on an anonymous basis to determine. Yeah, uh, yeah, my team, right? I needed an advocate for me. So I quickly got the invitation into the office where they sat me down at this giant, biggest conference table you've ever seen. It's like the on The Apprentice, the Donald Trump show, you know, that big giant, it was that. And I sat down and the the guy comes in, the, the lady that invited me in was here. Her name is Cheryl. And I can't remember his name, but I do remember it started with an investigator. So he introduced himself, investigator, oh, so-and-so, and he had his gun and his badge, and he had all of this. He threw his card down on the table. He says, you're currently under investigation. I called you and told you what I'm doing. Why are you, are you investigating? You put yourself under investigation. <laughs> Crazy. So I had this completely shut down. They had to investigate me. I They said, everything you're doing is actually above what we would require. So you're good but you have to go get your license. So then I had to go out and study and get the test and get the bond and do all the things you do to get your license. So it slowed me down a little bit. Wow. That's, that's crazy. I mean, listen, no matter how well you've done, I, I got to assume you've had a loan that's gone bad at some, you know, at some point, right? Nobody's, nobody's has a hundred percent batting record. Any stories on that or, or lessons learned from those? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I can talk about that all day, too. I, I've got one now that it, it was a property assemblage and there it was a development, and I only financed a piece of it. Yeah. But the appraisal was so ridiculously high, I felt it was extremely comfortable. Luckily, in this one, I'm, I'm friendly with the neighbor, so the assemblage can still happen, and I'll go ahead and develop that myself and get it done. But I, I would never invest in a project unless I own the entire or invest in the entire thing. Because he could easily go away, and then my project becomes much less valuable. Um, so that was a pretty important lesson. But I got to tell you, what I've seen the most with in this business is people making mistakes with the lean position. So mm. there's some national gurus out there that teach you how to go out and do this business, and they'll tell you to loan your money because you can get high returns. But what they don't tell you is when you're not in the senior position, you don't yeah. have any collateral at all, yeah. unless you're enough to take out the first, right? So if I make a loan for 100000 and I'm in first position lien, anybody that records behind me has to pay me off in order to get the property. That's right. And what I've seen many times in this one specific one, Corey, this, this lady lost $80,000 in her IRA, her oh. Roth IRA. It was her entire savings. And she lost eighty grand because she went into a, a junior position based on... On, on this lady's word. I mean, they went to a, a real estate training together and they trusted each other and and she totally ripped her off. Totally ripped her off. And there was nothing I could do to protect her. Mm. I still oh, think wow. about that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's those that get, that get to you, right? You know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be a private lender, I think it's a fantastic business. I actually wrote a report about this and that's one of the mistakes I see investors make so to try to help investors because I don't, I get these phone calls all the time. They think I could help them after they've made these mistakes. But I think it's a fantastic business. Just be very careful. Yeah. Yeah. So are you raising capital? Is your fund closed? Where are you at on that side? Yeah, we're raising capital. We're about 45 million. We're going to go all the way to the 75. And then as we discussed, might go over to a REIT or some other some other option. Yep. So it's a really sick. Well, it's only a $10,000 minimum investment, 8% return. We pay out every single month. Got it. Before I go to my final two questions, anything else that you want to say about the market, about your business, about anything that would be useful to the audience? I would say don't freak out on the market. This is absolutely an attack on real estate because it's an interest. We're going into a recession because of interest rates, but it's not 2008. They're very, very different. I get that question a lot. We're not going to see 
I just don't see how we can see what we saw in 2008. This resembles more of the savings and loan crisis, which you were probably working in New York at the yep. time. But you know, the savings and loan, loans crisis had a really high inflation, which they combated with really high interest rates. So it's much more similar to that than it was in 2008. So I would just say, don't freak out. <laughs> Everything's going to be okay. Good, good advice. So before I ask you a final question, what's the best place for, for people to find out more about you know what you have going on? Yeah, if you're interested in that report that I that I mentioned on the private lending side, if you want to make a passive return and you don't want to use someone like me to help you, you could get that report. Or I wrote a, a report comparing 1990 to now and mm. how I, I'm seeing the resemblance there to try to help people make good decisions. So I put both of those reports totally free at the pinereport.com. Otherwise, oh. you find us on at pinefinancialgroup.com. Great, great. So, Kevin, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom around the world for all people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? So freedom, I mean, I, I immediately go to the financial freedom because that's what we all think so much about. So let's do what you want, when you want, with who you want, right? So mm-hmm. the, the Robert Kiyosaki, do you have enough passive income to pay all your expenses and not have to worry about working. Um, so I was lucky enough to accomplish that long before I, was, I turned 40. And I'll tell you now, it's, the freedom is way more, way bigger than that. Yeah. So it's just the emotional freedom. It's like you described helping other people. I have a passion for kids. I hate seeing kids that are born into families that don't care about them. And then they don't have a fighting chance. So one of my big whys is to, is to help them. So I support you know clubs like the Boys and Girls Club and, and different, different charities like that. Yeah. So now it's it's about that's helping me um, more than the money at this point. Yeah, love it, love that, Kevin Amos. Thanks for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. All right, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.